Hey everybody, hope you're enjoying Space Waves. Uh, my name's Greg Miller. I'm a senior editor with Freight Waves and American Shipper. Uh, and today I'm joined by Simon Vandendries, general manager of Spire Maritime, uh, coming to us all the way from Luxembourg in Europe. Uh, uh, Simon, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Good morning, Greg. Nice to meet you. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about using satellite uh, technology to track maritime trade and to sort of decipher what's going on with trade flows. And, and I can't think of another time uh, besides now where uh, sort of having the eyes in the sky to uh, make sense of what's going on out there on the ocean uh, is more important uh, than it is now. So uh, very timely. Uh, and before we get to that, though, uh, Simon, if you could just tell us a little bit about Spire uh, and its background. Yep. Spire Global was around uh, 2012 founded in Silicon Valley, um, where we got the first small satellite app. Um, and since then, uh, we have grown the company. Uh, we are now about 250 people in six large offices around the world. We build satellites and we collect data about the Earth, and we sell the data to actually make the planet a better place. And we have several divisions. I'm heading the maritime part. We also have a similar one for aviation, for agricultural weather, and for orbital services with um, specialized satellites. You know, I've always wondered with satellites uh, how much upkeep is required. Is it just a matter of uh, launching them and then just intaking the data, or is there a lot of maintenance that's required to keep them up in the sky every day? How important is that? Well, we are doing nanosatellites, very small satellites, 3.5 kilogram, and there's a bit of maintenance. I actually have one here. I can show you that here. Right. Yeah, this is one in real size. Um, 3.5 kilogram, I can haul it in. This is what we make in Glasgow. Um, there's a bit of maintenance to be done, but I mean, this is productizing. We make one a month um, of these, and we can do more if needed. Um, once they're up in orbit, they remain there for about five, six years, and after that, they deorbit automatically. We're flying at around 500 kilometers, though. And so, how many satellites do you have up there right now? Right now, one hundred and two. Um, we already launched, I think, in total more than 120. Some of them came end of life. Others um, didn't make it um, because of the launches, but the vast majority did make it, and the vast majority is still there collecting data. Right. Okay. Um, you know, I want you know when, when we talk, when we look at maritime trade intelligence, uh, a lot of that revolves around AIS, uh, the automated identification system, uh, and part of that's terrestrial, and part of that's satellite. So before we discuss. Uh, the trade intelligence aspect, if you could give a bit of background on, you know, what is AIS and, and what's the difference between terrestrial and satellite AIS? Yeah, AIS is a, actually designed as an anti-collision system um, about 15, 20 years ago uh, when it started to avoid people um, shipping, crashing into each other when they come around the corner. It was more for ship to ship or for ship to shore. And unless um, after about 9-11, um, they thought, hmm, maybe we can do something. What if we throw up a satellite at 500 kilometers altitude? Can we then still receive the signal? And sure it did. So from that moment on, 2015, when the first satellites really started to gather the data, we, instead of seeing only the vessel for the first 60 miles when it leaves the, the coastline, now all of a sudden you can see them anytime, anywhere. We identify 250,000 vessels every day 
um, within approximately 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, we know where every vessel is every time. And uh, yeah, it started as anti-collision, and now we have customers actually making better trade decisions, making better insurance decisions, optimizing their vessel performance, a number of things that you can do with it. And the main difference between terrestrial and satellite is that terrestrial you can look for around 60 miles, and satellite you can see anywhere in the world. So when it comes to AIS, though, I think one of the keys is what is the information? And so you have the ship location, you have the intended destination, uh, you have the uh, the ship class, uh, the ship uh, speed, uh, and then importantly, you also have the draft of the ship, which shows how deep the ship is sitting in the water. Uh, and from that, you can extrapolate uh, whether the ship is empty or full, right? That is absolutely right. Yeah, these are standard uh, features of the AIS um, standard, yeah. Okay. So I, what I want to do is, uh, just as a bit of background, I used to work in a magazine called Fairplay, and the company that owned Fairplay owned another company called AIS Live, which is one of the first movers in the AIS space. Uh, long story short, I've spent many an hour uh, uh, crunched over a computer screen looking at these little dots where the ships were and trying to figure out how do I get a story out of this as a journalist. And I think that's a great smell test uh, if for data, getting value from data, uh, how hard is it to get a story out of this? And so what I'd like to do is I found I had different challenges for the different types of ships in terms of getting the value out of the AIS data. And I'd like to just uh, go through my challenges with you, and then we can talk about how to overcome these challenges, because I see there are some solutions out there. So let me just start with what I would think of as the easier end of the spectrum, uh, uh, bulk cargo uh, commodity ships. Uh, the easiest I, I found was LNG. Uh, LNG carriers only carry LNG. You know how much LNG is on board. You know they're going from one LNG terminal to another. So once you have the AIS data, it's very simple to see what's going on with the LNG trade around the world. Moving on to dry bulk ships, the larger vessels, the Cape size is also fairly simple uh, because they generally only carry iron ore or coal. But the minute you get to smaller uh, bulkers, Panamax or lower, it gets very complicated because the smaller ships can carry soybeans, they can carry corn, they can carry coal, they can carry all different kinds of minerals. So just knowing a Panamax is full doesn't necessarily tell you much about world trade. Uh, moving on to uh, the tanker sector, same pattern, the very large uh, VLCCs, the largest tankers, uh, unless they're on their maiden voyage out of the yards in Asia, you know they're carrying crude, they're going between the crude terminals, fairly simple, good data there. When you get to the smaller tankers, uh, the problem I found was that a lot of those tankers can switch from crude to products. And, and on the product side, it could be gasoline, it could be diesel, it can be all sorts of things. So again, it's a harder picture to decipher. And finally, uh, the other problem I ran into was that uh, uh, the AIS da uh, destination data, particularly on the tanker cargo side, the initial destination wasn't always the destination because a lot of those cargos were sort of traded multiple times en route. So those are the challenges I had, and you know, it just goes to show that having that, that dot on the screen does not necessarily translate into a story uh, or value. And so I'm wondering how you see maybe some of your clients addressing these things. Again, let's just talk about bulk commodities first and how maybe you're looking at it. Yeah, no, great question. And it's, um, 
it's a thing that um, some of our customers are doing and we're trying to help them as much as possible. Um, if I'm allowed to, to, to mention a few names that are great in, in bulk cargo, companies like Kepler, uh, Clipper Data, uh, Vortexa um, on the wet bulk side, maybe Freightwaves is also doing in, in, in these kind of, of areas. Um, but you need to have a lot of particular data um, around um, the cargo. Um, AIS is the start. I mean, it starts with location. Um, but once you want to know um, what is inside, um, you need to have a lot of historical data. That's mostly what we do. You, you can choose between having a lot of human intelligence and having a lot of machine intelligence. Um, we're certainly facilitating the latter, which is if you know that a particular vessel for the last 10 years went to pick up wheat, um, so you know the type of grain is actually wheat all the times, then you can fairly surely predict that when that particular birth is there, that particular vessel, that is going to be wheat again. Um, so it is about creating algorithms um, based upon the past. And um, if you do it properly, we have five to ten years of, uh, of historical data per vessel. Um, you can enrich that by talking um, to local port, to inline, to uh, inspectors, um, there's other data that you can have to make your algorithm smarter. Um, and there are two types of companies. The companies in the past that you might have worked with as well, they have a lot of human intelligence, people on the ground in the ports that know what is going on. And you have people that now create algorithms. Um, we facilitate the latter. Um, and that's what the future is. Oh, okay. You know, I would say, I would add a few things also that I found is a couple ways to get around this is extremely granular data on the terminals and on the piers because a lot of you know particular docks only handle particular commodities. So I've seen a lot of companies marry AIS data to very, very granular terminal data. And secondarily, uh, you know as far as the uh, ship identification, in a lot of ways it doesn't really matter who the listed owner is. Uh, and in fact, over recent years, after the European banks have pulled back from finance, a lot of the listed owners are going to be uh, uh, Chinese leasing uh, houses uh, because people are doing a lot of sale leasebacks. What really matters is who's operating the ship. So I find a lot of the chartering data is also valuable from the ship brokers. So if you can take the AIS data, the terminal data, uh, and the chartering data and put it all together, I think you can uh, get a lot closer to the sort of tra transparency that you inherently have on the LNG side. Yeah. No. Um, so now let's move on to, I think, uh, an area of shipping which this audience may, may be more interested in, which is container shipping. And in some ways, it's a little bit easier because uh, you, know, you know what the destination is going to be. You know where the ship's going. So the, uh, the tracking data is very helpful in terms of seeing uh, things like schedule reliability. Uh, but as a journalist looking into this, I ran into a couple big problems here. Uh, uh, first would be the, the draft information, which is so helpful on the bulk cargo commodity uh, ships in terms of seeing whether the ship is full or empty. With a container ship, I think the cargo mass is a very, very small part of the overall mass of the ship. You have the mass of the vessel, you have the container equipment, and you have a huge amount of mass related to the fuel uh, and the ballast water, and the level of fuel and ballast water changes dramatically uh, from when the ship, for example, leaves China to when it goes through the canal and finally arrives in New York. And also, uh, container ships are almost always sort of partly full. You know, they're going to transshipment hubs, they're putting containers off, they're bringing containers on. 
So, you know, number one, uh, I, you know, I tend to question the value of the, the draft data from AIS in terms of extrapolating, extrapolating out cargo volumes on the container side. And that's really what everyone's looking for. What's the container volumes? And then you mentioned algorithms. I notice a lot of companies that uh, I bring this problem up to tend to say, okay, well, we're going to use algorithms uh, uh, to show what the container volumes are going to be. And here's the problem I have with that, uh, you know, coronavirus. Uh, there's been just these massive changes to the way that the markets have worked, uh, starting uh, with the initial shock in China in February and then here and ongoing. So when people tell me that they're using algorithms from 2018 or 2019 to extrapolate out what the container volumes are based upon AIS data, you know, as a journalist, I don't know, I don't know if that passes the smell test. So again, uh, focusing on the container side, what do you think about all this? What do you see people doing? What are you doing? Yeah, container side, I mean, this is not something that we directly are working on. I can see several customers working on this on the container side. I can, uh, I guess that people, local specialization is very important. If you are um, living and working out of um, Dubai port or Shanghai mm -hmm. port, you have local information that you get into it. I think you can become a pretty good expert on it. To have a global solution for these containers um, and being able to do everything, uh, you're absolutely right with your algorithms. I mean, there won't be of much value in these exceptional times that we are right now. So I think the answer is, is uh, being very specialized, being very localized. Um, I know some people that are working just on for example, retail goods. Uh, they're just following the containers that are going into the retail stores uh, with retail goods inside. So you need to specialize. You need to specialize um, on particular segments and on particular geographies. Um, and I think that's where you need to start. That's the only way. Yeah. Okay, so you know, another entirely different subject uh, beyond trade intelligence uh, goes to uh, uh, sanctions and, and criminality. Uh, what we've seen uh, lately is there's been a lot of ship-to-ship uh, -ship transfers out in the ocean, whether that involves Ar Iranian oil trade or Venezuelan oil trade. And we can all have disagreements as to whether, you know, something actually wrong is going on here. Uh, you know, different countries uh, think different things, but that doesn't really matter when it comes to uh, a ship operator dealing with their bank or with their insurance company, or frankly, with uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Control in the United States. Uh, there are some serious penalties that arise when you break these rules, whether you believe in them or not. And uh, I think, you know, your kind of uh, services can provide a lot of value to shipping in terms of avoiding these kind of risks. So we've talked already about global trade. Uh, let's talk a bit about this aspect of uh, sanctions compliance. Yeah, that's a big topic. And uh, obviously not every customer is interested in it, but we've got a lot, um, both on the financing side, on the insurance side, um, on the regulation side, the government, the non-governments. So yes, and this is where satellite, I think, makes uh, the difference. Um, we can see things that were invisible uh, at the moment. We can detect automatically transshipments, and uh, we are working with our space partners um, to get uh, lightening up what they call dark vessels, the vessels that 
switch off deliberately the AIS. As you know, it's a manual system. You can switch it off if you want to. It's mandatory to keep it on, except for security reasons. You can switch it off. Um, and people switch it off in the dead name, even though they are trying to do other things. Um, in combination with synthetic aperture radar satellites, um, we have a fantastic solution together. So um, the traditional companies like Maxar and Airbus and the newer companies like ISAI out of Finland, um, they make pictures, uh, 200 by 60 kilometers of that area. They overlay with our satellite AAS data. We know exactly which one is dark or not. And on the algorithms, the shape of the vessel and everything there, we can trace back with a likelihood which vessel that would have been. And uh, we have done a couple of stories already on that um, in the news recently in cooperation with it. And I do expect much more on that. I think many ships have, um, <laughs> have now understood that um, you can no longer hide your things in the middle of the seas. I mean, uh, it's visible, uh, you can make cameras, and you make a picture in the dark behind the clouds, and that synthetic aperture radar image will show up with the data. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a great technology. It might be still expensive and still difficult for, for some, um, but we're working with the largest governments, and, and I know they are making lots and lots of progress, and they're, 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 they're far stronger in ensuring the compliance and the, the regulations um, than, than ever before. Yeah, so I guess another thing I'd like to look at is the future, obviously. Um, when we look at all of the satellites that are out there, when we look at all of the uh, AIS uh, or, or companies that are using AIS data. I'm, I'm wondering how far, how much further do we have to go in terms of transparency? Uh, you've, you, how, how do you see this changing in five years? Yeah, we ask ourselves that question every time. Uh, first of all, I think there's still some room to go to have better data, faster. I mean, we're doing a pretty good job, but um, we want to make sure that we, we catch every single ship, like every five minutes. Um, this is one. Second is that there's coming more data. There are talks about an AAS 2.0, uh, which is they call VDES, VHF Data Exchange System, which is going to be a two-way system. So not only the ship sending information, but actually port authorities, other parts, being able to send the information back to it. So that is something that we are watching closely. It might become mandatory, but that might take another five, six years. Um, and everybody needs to upgrade its equipment. So. To be seen, but this is certainly a place where satellites play a role. Um, we are following this very closely. We're working with some companies in demonstrating this capability. Um, other than that, um, it's about aggregating data. As you know, our satellites also collect maritime weather, so we know the weather in the middle of the ocean. We can predict on how to avoid interruptions, get ships out of trouble. So doing the combination of maritime weather and maritime location data is another great area where we can Well, this has all been very interesting, Simon, and as I said at the beginning, uh, very, very uh, timely given all that's going on in the world. Uh, I just want to thank you for being here, and also if you could just tell us where people can find out more information about your company. Well, thank you very much, Greg, for, uh, for being here today as well. If people want more information, go to spire.com, spire.com slash maritime, and they will find everything. Thank you very much.